Welcome to the Chicago Association of Realtors Young Professionals Podcast, where leaders from our Young Professionals Network talk real estate and break down business building with local experts. All right. Welcome, YPN. Uh, so today, uh, the topic is going to be attorney review in the real estate transaction. Uh, and with me today, I got Jordan Pyle, who was the chair for the 2021 or 2020 YPN board, now the, uh, the the past chair. And Jordan's making his first appearance on the pod. So Jordan, welcome, man. How you doing? Thank you, man. Appreciate you having me here. I'm excited for this. Always, man. Yeah, first of many. Uh, and our guest today is Mark Cervantes. Uh, Mark uh, is a partner at Cervantes Chat and Prince. Uh, before, co-founding, uh, before co-founding the firm, Cervantes uh, got his JD at St. Louis University, Go Bills, and thereafter maintained a solo practice in downtown Chicago under the name of law offices, uh, Mark A. Cervantes. So, Mark, how you doing, man? Thanks for coming on. Very well, Quinn. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, hello to everybody out there listening and uh, or watching. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, before we get started, why don't you just give us a quick background uh, by yourself? You know, what made you pursue a law degree and, and what made you really get into real estate law at the end of the day? Well, uh, I'm going to, you know, this is very cliche, but, uh, and it's probably a little bit before both of your times, but there used to be a show called LA Law. And uh, when I was growing up, I used to watch that show. Um, Corbin Bernstein was in it. He was also in Major League, if you remember the third baseman. But uh, I absolutely fell in love with that show, shows like Night Court, and literally, I can't stand the sight of blood, and I suck at math. So I couldn't be an engineer. I couldn't be a doctor. My parents basically told me I had to get an advanced degree. So it was the law. Uh, But, you know, I love to read. I love to argue. So I always thought I was going to be a litigator, which I was out of law school. I was a state's attorney here in Cook County. I did that uh, and then went off to do litigation on the civil side. But, um, you know, real estate wasn't even a thing for me um, until I just realized, you know, I did a couple of deals for some friends and it basically became my career uh, for the last 15, 16 years. And I've been an attorney for 21. Oh, wow. So you were doing some like you were just doing real estate deals for friends without like much experience at all? No, I, yeah. So, and the thing about it is when you work as a government employee, you get a lot of time off. You literally work like 30 to 40 hours. So just to make up some of that time, I learned how to do real estate uh, because it started with a friend. It's like, Hey, can you do real estate closing? Like "Uh, I'll figure it out. And it turned into a side hustle that turned into a career. Very cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So obviously we're, you know, Chicago association of realtors, YPN and our podcast here, you know, we want to be able to educate the people that are listening. So, you know, we want to dive into, you know, how this industry that you have ultimately chosen and, and that you've built, uh, you know, an incredible business and a name for yourself here in this, in this local market with, uh, but we want to make sure that everybody can kind of understand the role of the attorney in the real estate specific process. So maybe we could start with some kind of simple details around, you know, what your role is in the attorney review process of a real estate transaction here in Chicago. Sure. So I deal with a lot of newer agents. Um, you know, I meet them and I, I basically say is this. So the hardest part to for a buyer client, for instance, will take a buyer is that finding the property. As soon as you find the property, especially into like today's market, since we're in July right now of 2021 and the market's still absolutely scorching, uh, finding the property is the hardest thing. And I'm here then to orchestrate just getting it to the table and closing it. So I tell my agents, I say, look, now that you found them the property, you're always going to be part of it. You're going to be CC'd to everything. And let me orchestrate what goes on here. So I break it down into 
the certain parts of getting through attorney review, which we can kind of flesh out later on, uh, which would include the inspection, uh, making sure then that financing has everything that they need, and then the closing table. That That's simplifying the process, but I am then orchestrating everything from that point till they're handed the keys at the table. Um, and I'm allowing for and doing the negotiations. I'm their mouthpiece or, um, you know, I will speak for them as their agent uh, to the sell side or in the converse when I'm representing the seller, I do all the discussions along with the help of the realtors, uh, just getting all the details of the deal completed and getting the closing table. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I always talk about with, you know, my buyers and my clients in general, just the, the power of the team, right? The power of having that cohesiveness between the realtor, the lender, the client and the attorney, you know, it's just so critical, especially nowadays, you know, we're having a lot of headaches around deals and we're having a lot of expectations on both sides of the deal that may be not being, you know, being fulfilled or they're just not the right or the proper expectations because there's so much hearsay out there in the market about what's right, what's wrong, what's the right way to go about doing things. So uh, tell us a little bit, you know, so how do you basically, when you work with your agents, how are you making sure that, you know, when this client is trusting you guys with, you know, one of the largest transactions of their life, you know, how are you ultimately working with these different parties to ensure that the buyer is essentially removing these, the stress and getting to the closing table without a hitch? So, I mean, number one, the most important thing I think in the team aspect, as you talked about, Jordan, is temperament, right? You try, you try, each deal takes on a life of its own and each deal has a certain temperament to it too. You know, if a buyer is buying a property that's been listed for over a year and the seller is just happy to get an offer, you're going to have one train of thought. Or if a buyer, you have a buyer that just beat out 10 other people with an escalation clause, you're going to have a different thought. So now that along comes with experience. As I said, I've been practicing for 21 years. I've been doing real estate for 15 or 16 years solely. So you kind of just learn that because you're not going to treat each deal exactly the same. And I try to come up with a theory of the transaction at the beginning of the transaction. So I'll contact the client. I'll contact the attorney. If I'm on the buy side, I'll contact the lender and just try to see, okay, how do we reduce pain points for the buyer? Because they're already going to be basically being asked for everything on the lending. And that stresses a lot of buyers out. So I try to make each portion of the transaction flow. So if it comes down to attorney review and you know what that comes with is calling, you know, a lot of people don't like to use their telephone to actually call people. I find that, you know, the introduction and call and I, you know, of course I use email. However, people want to talk, especially, you know, when they're buying, like you said, this is the largest investment a lot of times people will have. So they just want to talk it out. And I will email, but, you know, when we're discussing inspection items, when we're discussing attorney review, you know, you and I, we do this every single day, right? And a lot of times, especially with first-time homebuyers, they've never seen this language. They don't understand it. So I try to go through and say, look, this is the letter I'm about to send out. Do you understand it? Would you like to discuss it? Here's other side's response. Let's discuss that and make sure you understand it. I just don't want you to assume it because a lot of people, they won't speak up and they'll just say, you know, whatever you think. Well, you know, I'm not the one who's going to be living there, the one buying it. So I like to make sure that they understand the process and ask questions that are necessary. So when they go through it again, they kind of have a better understanding of it. And so when we get an answer, that's not necessarily something that they agree with. They at least understand maybe where the other side is coming from. Sure. Definitely. 
Um, so a follow-up question to that, uh, since you started talking about, you know, the, the contracts themselves. So how, how flexible are, you know, the typical contract that you probably see is the multi-board and then, you know, the car condominium contract. So most attorneys, their first letter, typically what they'll send is it'll be added language that is an extension of the existing contract. How, so how flexible, run us through like the flexibility of the contracts themselves. Can anything be changed? Can anything be altered? Can you only really add to the, the existing language? So the multi-board, the 7.0 just came out probably about two years ago. And what the board tried to do in the 7.0 was kind of take out, you know, deal fatigue. There's a lot of deals were dying prior to 7.0 because attorney review was taking too long. Inspection was taking too long. All these things were taking too long. So what they tried to do, because it was a group of realtors, a group of attorneys that got together to create 7.0. 7.0 is not perfect by any means. Yeah. Uh, it's better than what we had before. So most attorneys will have their stock attorney review letter. Uh, in addition to that, we still look through every deal because there could be different addends and, and different things. Once again, this goes back to the theory of it. You know, I'm sure you guys have heard this before. Hey, if you if we can't get through attorney review, I got five other people that want to buy this property. So right. you I, that's why I like to talk to the agents also. If it's an agent I've always worked with, we're going to have a discussion anyways. But if it's an agent I've never worked with, before I send my letter, I don't send it out blindly. I'll call the agent. And I'm like, tell me about your negotiation. Was it a tough negotiation? You know, are there backup offers on this thing? Or has this thing been, you know, listed forever and we'll get whatever we want. So we, I basically do that. I will make, there, there are changes I make to 7.0 and CART no matter who the deal is uh, because there are certain things I just don't agree with. Um, and yeah. there's certain things that I will clarify or do other things. For example, um, you know, I could be in closings until six, seven o'clock every single night. The multi-board for instance says that a business day ends at 6 PM. Well, if I'm at closing until six, six 30 and my staff hasn't, been, you know, they'll draft a letter on my behalf, but I haven't reviewed it yet. One of my things that I asked for is that the business day ends at 11.59 p.m. Because, you know, you guys are sending emails out at 10 o'clock. I'm sending letters out. I don't want to blow a date because I couldn't get back out of a closing. So sure. it'd be certain things like that. And we negotiate those things. Um, but for the most part, there are modifications and certain changes I always make. And then I'll make certain changes based on the deal structure. Sure. Mark, on that, on that regard, just kind of regarding the contracts, when Quentin brought that up, it just came to mind. And first off, I just love how you, you look at the deal, right? You look at the details around the negotiation and because not every, there's not a one size fits all approach with this. So, but just to go back to what we were talking about was, you know, how, let's, you know, say there's a new agent on this, listening to this podcast today. And, you know, I know this was something I thought about seven and a half years ago when I first got into the business was, when do you, when should you use the condo contract? When should you use the multi-board contract? Sure. What, are there certain types of deals that might have a little bit more hair on it? But that, in my mind, I feel like that's when I need to use the multi-board. I feel like it protects the buyer a little bit more. And maybe that's wrong. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about that and what the pros yeah. and cons are. So prior to 7.0, the general consensus among most attorneys was, I think at that point it was 6.2 or 6.1, was that when you're representing a buyer, you want to use the multi-board and a seller would prefer the car contract. Okay. And, you know, to be honest with you, I talked to a lot of agents and like, I, I asked them, so which one, why did you use this one versus that one? They're like, the car contract's only four pages and the buyer sure. only has to fill out so many pages. Um, you know, it, it came down to that, you know, if 
what I, there are times when I get transactions and there's no realtors involved and people will come to me and say, this is a for sale by owner. There's not going to be any realtors involved. The contract that I put together and I help them is I use the multi-board. It has added protection and fleshes things out more. It makes my attorney review letter shorter because it already takes care of, you know, a lot of people don't like it because it's, it's lengthier. I mean, but the font's bigger. So as I get older, I can read it easier. Sure. Uh, but you know, if I had my choice between the two, it would be the multi-board. Now, that's just because I think it covers more areas so that somebody doesn't have to rewrite a portion of it that the card doesn't. Not saying that there's anything wrong with the car. It's just the multi-board, is, it's newer, and it's also, um, it covers more areas. Yeah, it's the it's the lengthiness of it, I think, is why most people opt to go with the, the shorter yeah. ones. Oh, I think that's a thousand percent. And it's like right in the MLS too. So it's just the ease of access. Um yeah. good to good to know. I mean, I'll i so I've I've never written a multi-board to be totally honest. So I am gonna get I mean, I've only seen it on the you know sell side. So I, that's something I'll have to get much more familiar with then. Um so going off that, Mark, so the the length of a turn review, tell us a little about when does it begin, when does it end, and and how long does that typically take so uh, and, and can it go longer than the agreed upon time frame? Yeah. So the, the multi-board actually, so let me, let me start with the car contract. The car contract leaves you a blank line. It'll say blank business days after acceptance. That's for attorney review and inspection. The multi-board actually already has five business days fill, uh, not even filled in. It's, it's typed in. So um, I would say the 90% of deals are five business days from the date of acceptance. So in the easiest way, I tell people it's seven calendar days. So regardless of what time you received it as a buyer's agent, let's say you got it at 11 p.m. on a Monday, it's going to expire at 5 or 6 p.m., depending on which contract you're going to use, the following Monday, uh, subject to holidays and weekends, right? So that's what most people do is it's five business days, but with a car contract, you can, you know, I see a lot of people put seven business days because they know that right now it's impossible to get inspectors. So instead of having to do an extension, they'll just put in seven business days and really hope that those two extra business days, which will probably cover two weekends, they can get an inspector out there. Um, that is the number one thing that I would say, that's how long it's supposed to supposed to be. Now, the multi-board actually has a clause in there that says, if after 10 business days, the parties haven't come to an agreement on all modifications, either party could null and void the contract. Actually, in my attorney review letter, I strike that language and I say something to the effect of, attorney review will end once all matters have been discussed and either approved or denied in writing. So, um, you know, what you know, I went to a lot of seminars when they were building the 7.0 contract, and they thought that 10 business day idea would shorten attorney review. But most attorneys know that let's say a contract's accepted on a Monday, I don't get it until Wednesday or Thursday. I open my file up, now it's the weekend. And you know, if that was the case, it w- things would be canceled left and right. Now, that is a problem. I mean, I've had attorney reviews go as long as three or four weeks just sure. because so-and-so is on vacation or you're stringing somebody else out due to the fact that your clients are looking at a different property. You know, 
we kind of put the gauntlet down on a lot of these. It's kind of like, it's been going on too long. If I don't have an answer by X date, we're going to cancel this deal. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I would say more than half of most transactions I'm in, the, the attorney review goes longer than the specified time anyway. So it's almost like why even have a time frame in there, you know? And one thing I would do want to mention is, remember, these are different contingencies, regardless of what contract you use. Right. The attorney review contingency is separate from your inspection contingency, which is separate from your mortgage contingency, which is separate from your condo if you're or association review. So you could theoretically be out of attorney review, but still negotiating inspection issues. So I get this call a lot from agents. Hey, is attorney review done because we need to get secondary earnest money? And I say, Yes, attorney review is done, but we're still negotiating out credits for an inspection. So the contract specifically states that once, it, you know, depending on how you draft the earnest money section, it'll say two days, three days after AI. Well, if it says AI, that's attorney review and inspection. So really, if you wanted to change it during your write-up of the offer, um, you can say it's really two or three business days after attorney review versus inspection but a lot of agents write ai so it kind of lengthens it because that's the next you know pain point for most sellers is what am i going to get secondary earnest money sure yeah um, another question regarding contracts uh do you ever kind of curious beyond the multi-board and then uh you know the, the condominium uh, contracted car do you ever see any other contracts that are floating out there at all i get the main streets um, so you get suburban realtors that are doing work sure. in the city. You get the main street organization. That's They're, right. They have a contract, um, new construction. Obviously there's going to be their contract. Um, yeah. randomly you'll get the one from office depot. Uh, but that happens very, you know, if there's a realtor involved, you're not going to get that. It's usually people buying without a realtor. They'll find something on the internet. It's really from yeah. Ohio and they make it work for Illinois. <laughs> Sure. Why don't, we, why don't you offer a little bit of background regarding, you know, for, for some new agents who maybe, you know, haven't touched a new construction deal or seen it. Uh, why don't you kind of explain how that process is like, sure. how it's different from, you know, so, um, I'm pretty involved in new construction for sellers and buyers. So with regards to new construction for buyers, really what happens here is the developer, if it's a national developer, it's a developer that's doing whole, um, subdivisions, they'll have their own contract, right? That's probably drafted by the seller's attorney. It's going to be pretty fairly one-sided to the developer. Um, like I'm reviewing a contract right now by a national developer, and it specifically says there's no attorney review. So once you get a contract like that, you as an agent, you'll want to be careful of that. So thankfully, the agent called me and said, look, this developer, and I'm familiar with them, says that there's no attorney review. So the second they sign it, they can't really get out of it. So in that case, I'm reviewing the contract right now. I'm in essence pointing out all the things I would point out during attorney review to the potential buyer and saying, look, I you won't be able to change these things. Are you okay with this potential exposure on these issues? And that's what I do there. Uh, when I represent developers that do spec homes or subdivisions, I draft a contract and we go out off that and things to watch out for no mortgage contingency, for instance. Yeah. Um, you know, you get developers that are building big high rises here and that's something that is in a lot of contracts I draft. And then also a lot of contracts for big time developers. The reason for that is if somebody's building a home for somebody 
and you have a ton of extras, let's say you put in $60,000 of extras, that developer won't be able to sell that house to anybody else. So that's the reason you don't have all the outs that you normally would have in a car contract or a uh, multi-board contract. Sure. Yeah. I mean, also, you know, depending on how early out you're buying new construction, you don't know what the interest rate environment is going to look like. So as a builder, you're like, you know, you want to tie them up, you know, if it jumps up 2%, they can't afford it. Like just, you know, see you later. What are you going to do? You know? Yeah. I mean, there right around the, after the financial crisis, there was a lot of people that I ended up representing negotiating out of new construction contracts because yeah. certain buildings couldn't get FHA financing and, you know, Fannie and Freddie wouldn't back them. So, you know, we had to negotiate buyouts with regards to that. But those are things that, you know, as a newer agent, don't be afraid of the new construction contracts. I mean, there's a lot of the same concepts. It's just not in the same place that you found it. They're a lot longer. Yeah. Uh, it was the ones I draft are about 30 or 40 pages. Um, but, you know, if you're not sure, talk to your real estate attorney and they can kind of walk you through and help you before you meet with the age, uh, excuse me, the client to sign it up. Because instead of just saying, here's the contract via DocuSign, at least that way you're adding value to the relationship between you and that buyer by being able to explain the different areas because, you know, it's going to be different than your uh, regular multi-board. Yeah, good advice. Definitely. Yeah, new construction, have an attorney read over it first. Definitely. Um, so yeah, with that being said, uh, you know, do you see that most states use attorneys or some that don't? And, and do you recommend that, you know, everyone should probably use a real estate attorney uh, in this process? Well, I'm a little biased to it, but <laughs> I get a lot of clients from different states, California, New York. And, they, you know, at the end, they say, I can't believe I've bought five or six properties my whole lifetime. I've never needed an attorney. So um, Illinois, the Chicagoland area specifically is what we call an attorney state. So, you know, there's there's nothing saying that a buyer or seller has to use an attorney. There is no law that says anybody, you know, but it's highly recommended by agents, realtors, because like, once again, going back to our original conversation, we orchestrate the transaction, uh, right. having to deal with and analyze certain legal portions of it. So for instance, like let's talk about sellers with regards to sellers, clearing title and doing all that, that is a function of my role in a transaction. Um, could a realtor potentially do some of it? Yeah, they could, but we want you guys out there selling. We want you guys doing that. Um, and the title companies, they hear the title companies in the area. That's not part of their function. Uh, in other States, the title companies will pick up some of that work. Uh, but there's not as much discussion with the client. It's basically sign here, sign here, sign here. Um, you know, the fact that I have a law degree, I can analyze certain things, be able to explain it to the clients, both on the sell side and the buy side. So I've found that, you know, attorney states are, are in the minority. Hmm. Uh, but once I have somebody that's done business and done transactional work, real estate wise in other states, they, they like the handholding and or the explanations. So we, you know, most of my sellers don't, you know, don't come to closing. I draft all the documents. I explain everything. I clear title. You know, sometimes you get, you get clean deals. You have one mortgage, you get the payoff. Great. But there are times when you have IRS liens or you have certain things that take or a lien or a mortgage that wasn't cleared from 20 years ago. Sure. That is part of our job description. We do that on the buy side with regards to it, walking through potential exposure. That's how I look at things. When I talk to my clients, I'm like, all right, if you agree to this 
paragraph, this is your potential exposure. Are you willing to take on that exposure as to as opposed to this is their response? Is it yes or no? So there's a discussion, there's an understanding, and you know that way the people know what they're getting themselves into. For instance, um, you know one thing that comes up a lot is will the buyer take an existing survey? Because the contracts both call for a survey not less than six months old. Right. So what we tend to do in the industry is to save the sellers money if they have an old survey, let's say four or five years ago, but they've touched nothing on the outside. We have what's called an affidavit of no survey, um, excuse me, an affidavit of no change. Um, and so we try to help reduce the cost of the seller. And then I explain to the buyer all those things. So, you know, there's certain deal parts that, we explain everything. We explain title. For instance, what's a special service area? Certain things like that. I mean, I can get it totally in the weeds on that. I don't want to do that. But there are different things or things that comes up a lot is what is the exposure on historical preservation, historical district, sure. those kind of things. We talk about all that and we have a discussion and we come to a consensus on how we need to move forward. Yeah, good. Yeah, that's a good point. And now that you mentioned the survey, I guess, so surveys typically you're only going to get for two to four units, standalone buildings, you know, whatever. Uh, I assume I, I've never seen one for, for condo or anything like that. Uh, but I guess talk about the importance of ensuring that you have a survey uh, when you're closing on a property. And should you ever close without a survey? So for condos, you don't get a survey only because a condominium is a, it's a legal fiction. You're buying a box of air, right? Okay. So the survey is really the survey when the developer recorded the declaration, they recorded a survey along with that. So that's the survey. So on each transaction thereafter, you don't need to order a survey. For anything outside of a condominium, so I usually tell people, if there's not four zeros, if there's four zeros at the end of your PIN number, you'll probably need a survey because all condos have four numerical digits at the end of their PIN number. It's not a 100% rule, but it's a good rule of thumb. Um, So basically... And I had this conversation this morning with a client, you know, let's say you're buying one, two, three main street. The title company is not ensuring that you're buying one, two, three main street. One, two, three main street is for the purposes of the U S postal service. So you get your mail, What you're buying is the pin number. You're also buying the legal description. You know, the thing that says the meets and bounds, you know, so forth, you know, subdivision, 1948, things like that. That's what you're buying. So what the survey does is it, has somebody go out to the property, they figure out the meets and bounds and they match the survey and legal description to legal description that's in the records of the recorder of deeds. So it's imperative, in my opinion, the close on other people close on uh, properties without a survey. They do Um, one, maybe because there's only one other owner um, and they're pretty confident that the survey before as in, you know, there's been nothing done to it, but, you know, I would say as a matter of choice, most people do, it is then a business decision and your determination of risk. If you're not going to, uh, I have clients, uh, investor clients that say, you know what, I'm just going to flip that anyways. So no, I'm not going to get a survey. I don't want the cost, but that's going to be more your people that are more sophisticated, but we, it's a discussion that we do have. Uh, I, I always recommend having a survey. Got it. Definitely. 
Cool. Let's jump back into, I want to go into probably the most, you know, common thing that we all kind of all share in a lane here, which is back into this attorney review process. And some of the common things that we see as deal killers, right? You know, I think there's a lot of, you know, from whether it's a, an agent looking at this and, and trying to figure out how to relay this information onto their client, or maybe this is a consumer that's hearing this and they want to understand a little bit better about some of these different terms that are involved in these different contingencies through this attorney review period. So some of these buzzwords that you know people throw around you know it's the attorney review it's the inspection and uh the inspection report and all of the different credits and things like that that come with that uh, as well as the appraisal and the review and approval of condo docs and and the mortgage contingency um you know so all those things being said you know where are you finding especially in today's market what is creating the biggest headaches in these deals or what's ruffling feathers and maybe what can agents do better in order to avoid some of these pitfalls the biggest you know, in my experience, um, and just so you guys have an idea of how many deals. So, you know, the last three months have just been historically crazy with regards to deal volume. Uh, on a normal, a normal year, my goal is to close 30 deals a month. I've been closing upwards of 60 to 70 deals a month lately. It's, it's that bonkers right now, right? So with regards to what I'm seeing in my own practice, it's always, it's, it, it has always been, but even more so now is inspection items, right? So, and it also depends on psychologically where people think, is it a buyer's market or seller's market? You know, and people will tell you, you know, all the big trainers will say, there's no such thing. It's just the market, right? But, you know, people have, you know, the media says um, there's always a shortage. There's not enough inventory. So it gets in the heads of sellers saying, I have the upper hand. So um, I'm seeing a lot more as is contract. Um, with regards to properties and, but the biggest thing is, and it, it, it's always been this, but more so lately is, you know, you're never going to get a perfect property as a buyer and the seller always thinks their property, there's nothing wrong with it. So as a listing agent, I think a good thing to do is have a very frank conversation with your client and say, look, I think you should price it at X based on, these comparables and whatever analysis that you use, but just letting you know more than likely, these are going to be the hit areas that an inspector is going to find. And you guys have been doing this for a while. You guys know what they are as a buyer's agent going in, talking to your client say, look, and what I tell people is when you make your offer, you know, instead of just being inside the house for three minutes, you know, you know, take a look at it because it's my opinion. The contract calls for this is if you could see it during your offer mm-hmm. and it's, clearly there you should have taken that into account in the offer that you made yeah. now, there's stains in the carpet and there's nothing on top of it take that into account because the report's going to come out and there's going to be stains on the carpet or there's going to be nicks on the wall you saw that when you made your offer so you should be negotiating that and you know the good thing about the 7.0 contract is it specifically states the things that you can ask for and theoretically it also states that if you ask for something outside of that box, seller can cancel unilaterally. So, and I, and I always tell people, you know, there's the, let's throw everything on the wall and see what it sticks approach, which I don't agree with. I say, let's focus on mechanicals and all the things that the contract allows for, because those are the big ticket items. And once again, it goes back to the theory, you know, you guys as agents sometimes get the, you know, tap on the shoulder. Hey, we came down on price where you guys wanted don't nickel and dime us when it comes to the inspection, right? But, you know, 
a lot of first-time home buyers, they see a report that's 50 pages long and they want to ask for everything. But once again, that's where it takes a strong realtor and a strong attorney to, to reel them in and say, look, what really is important to you? And I usually say health and safety, those are things that are there should be should be important. You know, there are gonna be some aesthetic things, but you know, anything that has to do with health and safety, we can definitely negotiate. But once and you know, the thing about it is I get this from sellers all the time. Hey, this is an as-is contract. Why am I getting a list of 20 things to fix? Once again, it, it takes a strong realtor and a strong attorney to sometimes really in your you know your clients. I know when you're starting off new, it's somewhat daunting to say no to your client because you're conditioned to be as helpful as you can, but they're going to thank you in the long run because I've had deals literally where I send a letter out knowing that I shouldn't be asking for these things. And the other side says, nope, we're going to cancel. You never know how short of fuse each side has. Once again, that's managing clients, managing expectations. Sure. Yeah. Material defects, health and safety issues. And, and we all know that as is contracts are, you know, they're kind of wishy-washy anyways. So it's, uh, but I see that, that being, a, an, a, you know, something that people use to get an edge and then it creates ultimately the, the tension later on during the deal. So, you know, I'm also very cognizant on how I'm relaying that information and that offer to the seller to set those expectations on like, Hey, this could get a little wonky because of the style of how this has kind of been up until this point. Right. And you can kind of get a sense for that. I feel like when you know who you're working with on both sides of the deal, you know, which, which things you have to kind of use some finesse around. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, what I, what I love about the attorney I work with, and I want to ask you your opinion on this is like, I think realtors and buyers and sellers, it's so emotional to, to us. Right. And at the end of the day, the law is black and white. And, and, you know, it's sometimes where, where my attorney just has to say, it's either yes or no. Or it's, it's either you have to make a business decision to, to move forward or you don't. Like, talk to us a little bit about just how that plays into the overall expectation and, and the, the closing, you know, attorney review process. Yeah. So, I mean, that comes around where sometimes buyers and or sellers, they'll make requests or things conditional on certain ideas of a transaction. And the other side just doesn't agree. And a lot of times I will have to sit my client aside and say, look, you wanted X. They're not willing to give you that. And, you know, for these, for these enumerated reasons, they, they can, they can do that. So once again, like you were saying, Jordan, you just kind of make what's important. Because usually when I have a conversation, the first thing I say to a client, sell or buy, how important is it for you to buy this place or how important is it you to sell this place? And I'll get answers ranging from do your best, push the envelope as much as you can, but I have to buy this place because I have nowhere else to live. Or I'll get, you know, if I don't sell it to these guys, I wasn't even looking to sell it anyways, but I just wanted to test the market and I got an offer within 24 hours. Right. So I'd like to understand that because that's how I'm going to couch things. And once again, it's about communication. When I'm about to send a bad letter out to the other side, I'll call the other attorney because most of them I know. And I'll say, look, I'm sending this to you. Just letting you know, you know, this is the parts that I'm not going to put in the letter, but you know, if the goal is still to get to the table, let's, let's discuss this because sometimes a cold letter will take people by surprise. And I try to talk it out with regards to that. 
Yeah. Do you ever have just from a tactical standpoint, you know, something I feel like that's worked well and, you know, tough, to, you know, you, you're always running into new situations. I feel like as a realtor that's growing in your career and sometimes it just requires, like you said, picking up the phone and having a three-way conversation, you know, do you, do you, do you feel like that is, um, that's helpful for, for an attorney an agent and a buyer to hop on the phone and just say, Hey, let's just hash this out really quickly. Or, or how would you approach that? If, Absolutely. If I mean, if I get bad news, I'll always call my agent first because this agent may have looked at 50 properties with this person and knows them in and out. And I've only known them for a week. Right. Yeah. And I will call the agent first and I say, look, I'm about to send this email out. Let's talk about it. And then let's get so-and-so on the phone. Um, I'll always do that. You know, I'll do that with agents that I work with for years or even agents that I don't have that much um, experience with because they know the client. You know, if it's a client that I brought into the deal that, you know, sometimes I won't do that because I know them personally, but most of my deals come from agents. So I'll always ask the agent first and I'll defer to them. I said, look, do you want to break the news to them or do you want me to break the news? And then let's do a conference call. Yeah. Yeah. The last thing I'll say on that is I just feel like it's so classic in this business that time kills all deals. And it's like, I feel like so many of the problems that happen in these real estate transactions where the tensions do start to to get messed with is just, it's a delay of like doing the thing that is, that needs to, to happen. Right. And it's a, it's a fear thing. I feel like from an agent's perspective of, Oh my God, I have to have this conversation or I have to figure out how to approach this thing. And ultimately it drags things out. And that's what I think, you know, kills the deals a lot of the times. Yeah, for sure. And, and a follow-up question to that. So, I mean, as you know, you know, a lot of realtors can have pretty big heads sometimes and, and we're, 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 you know, we're the initial point of contact and, and we're the, you know, we're the, we're kind of the groundskeeper of the deal and we're going through the entire transaction. Um, so, you know, you know, I've had personally, I've had transactions where I've seen realtors get in the way of things. Um, I guess like my question to you would be during the process, what can realtors do to kind of, what would you like to see realtors do during this transaction? Because to me, during the attorney review process, you're, you're more behind the wheel than anybody else. Once, once we get that inspection done, you know, so what do you wish you would see more realtors do or do less when it comes to, it comes to that? Well, it, it's on a case by case basis. So, you know, I don't mind when we have battle, I don't like doing battle of letters. Um, it goes back to the communication thing. So let's say that, we are absolutely so far apart on inspection items or what, whatever the issue is. Sometimes it just takes a call from the realtor to the other realtor and say, what is it going to take for yeah. your side to stand down on this issue? Because this is really important for my client. The attorneys, you know, can handle it, but it becomes kind of cold um, on there. And, you know, you guys all, it's a small network, even though there's a lot of realtors out there, but sometimes if it comes from you versus a letter from me, it goes a long way for the two sides. Um, because sometimes in a transaction, attorneys are weaponized and I have to write certain letters in a certain way because if it ever came down the litigation, um, I have to write it in a certain way. And that comes off to certain people, you know, uh, standoffish, antagonistic. But if it's a phone call from you guys and, and I'll, that's part of the process. I'll talk to my agents and say, Hey, call the listing side, call the buy side. You know, we're, we're only this far apart. See if you can work that out, throw in some furniture whatever it's going to take. Yeah. Let's, let's figure it out. 
Yeah. And, and I think that's a perfect, I just want to like do a shameless plug for YPN and like what it's done for my career. And I'm sure Quentin can, you know, start to see this happening for him as well as just the collaboration aspect. And that's why it's so important to get involved in this industry and to, to give back in the way of YPN or any other professional board that, you know, you have the chance of sitting on because, you know, there's so many times where, you know, the other the other agent on the other side of the deal. And how many times is that such a more pleasant transaction when you yeah. know that person or when your client's up against five other offers or whatever the situation might be, it's just shameless plug for YPN to get involved and collaborate with other brokers. It's not competition. We can all go further if we, you know, help each other out. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is like a, this is like a really hard pressing issue for me because it bothers me when agents don't get on the phone. Cause I usually always be on the phone, but before you spin an offer pretty much like I'm a phone guy, like I, I need context behind everything that's and, and when you're in a turn review, it's, it's good that, you know, you're on the phone a lot too, Mark, because a lot of agents don't really know that they just see the letters go by. And so it's, it's very to the point. There's no emotion behind it. It's this or that. And, and so just, Picking up the phone if you have a deal that's dying between attorneys or something like that and getting that context, like you'll be surprised how quickly you can figure things out and how things are not nearly as bad as you think they are based on, you know, the letters just, you know, being a, you know, just completely being obstructed. So always pick up the phone when, when, when in doubt. Um, so yeah, next question. Why don't you, so what are some things that could come up during the attorney process that would maybe give you some serious cause for concern when you have a client buying a property? Um, and, and, and in that case, you know, do, do you, if that is the case, do you often tell them to back out or how do you typically handle that? Well, you know, the, there's not one thing that comes up a lot, but um, if there are liens on the property, um, not that you can't get beyond that, but um, you, you know, for instance, I'll use something that I recently had to deal with. So um, in the city of Chicago, there is building court, right? It, the building court is not, they're administrative hearings as opposed to circuit court. So what I like to say is I refer to it as 400 West Superior, if you're familiar with it. 400 West Superior is our administrative court. There's one down on 95th Street as well. And, you know, you get when you get a building that has high weeds, not having um, the, the management company signed on a building, those are all things that 400, 400 West Superior deals with. Those, you can't find those things on a search. So when I get a file that has a lot of building court cases that I'm aware of, you know, and the time between when a building gets hit with a violation and when it actually goes to court can be sometimes up to eight months. So let's yeah. say you close the deal and the, uh, the seller of the deal owned it, but the violations didn't come out until after you owned it, you're, they're yours now. So those are kind of things that I watch out for and be very careful. Um, be careful about estates, not saying once again, don't run away from that because sometimes you get great deals on estate sales, right? But just making sure that whoever set up the estate or the deceased, all that is pretty buttoned up so that you won't have any title issues. Um, I just recently had a flood zone where um, the buyers found out the property was in a flood zone. Their insurance was five times what a normal insurance policy would be for a similar property. Those are all things I watch out for. Uh, but probably the number one thing is condo analysis. So, okay. and since we're in Chicago, we do a lot of condo deals, right? Um, and we, as a firm, review all the condominium documents as T 
tedious as it can be, um, we review all of them. Things that we watch out for, and it comes up in the smaller buildings, three flat, four flats. We're not a management company. How much do you have in reserves? How much? What are the future projects? Um, there's two ways to look at small associations: either keep your assessments low and special everything else, or keep your assessments high and you may not get the benefit of it. It really just depends on the theory of each association. So I would say that that's where we are very careful is in looking at associations. Um, you know, a lot of associations that are three unit, four unit, they don't keep minutes because they would do everything via text or yeah. over email. So I, you know, I'm very careful with my clients and say, look, the trade-off of buying here is they don't have a lot of corporate formalities, what they're supposed to be doing. Just be aware of that. Um, you know, because if you're buying in a building that has a thousand units with a management company, they're paying a lot of money to, they're going to have minutes for six times a year. So those, th- those are kind of red flag areas that I always wanted people to make sure that they understand on the smaller buildings. Sure. Can you, can you offer some additional insight on like maybe specifically what some of those red flags might be like, you know, is, is there like a certain dollar amount you look for per unit in reserves? Um, are there so, things that maybe the association does that they shouldn't be doing that you can track in the minutes? So lenders will use, it's not a rule, but lenders will probably try to look for a building that they should have in reserves at least 10% of their operating budget. So making math simple, like I said, I suck at math. Let's say their annual budget's $1,000. They should have at least $100 a year into reserves right? Uh, very simplistically. So it, once again, it really all depends, but you want that usually as a baseline, right? Because that's what lenders are lo- at least looking for. Uh, so if a lender thinks that's important, but you know, it came up back right around the mid 2000s, there was a lot of split face brick buildings. I don't know if that was before your time, but those are built. It was, it was a material that was cheap and yep. buildings were being built with that. So there was a time, like early 2010 and afterwards, if these buildings aren't sealed properly, these buildings will have a ton of condensation inside and then that creates mold. Because if they're not sealed when they're supposed to be, it turns into a huge problem. Now, they're not allowed to be built with now, but that was kind of like a red flag. So we were looking at what are they built with because they have this weep system, this whole thing. So we look at that, we look at, what have you done as preventive maintenance? Because let's say the building's five years old and it's a three unit or four unit and you've done nothing. Your, your assessments are still $100 a month. That's great for you. But, you know, you're, you're representing second buyer and the roof is probably going to fail in the next three or four years. The exterior of the building hasn't, you know, been sealed. You know, there could be all these problems down the road that, you, you know, second buyer is going to have to deal with. So those are kind of the analysis of things we think about. Once again, the difference between that and a big building, a big building will do what's called a reserve study. They'll hire an outside company. The outside company will say, look, in the next 15 years, these things should be updated. And it's going to cost this for a roof. It's going to cost this for elevators. It's going to cost this. So a good association and management company can build that into what the increases in assessments are going to be. Sure. Yeah, no, good stuff. Um, and then another question I'd have would be special assessments. So are they always, is it always a reflection of an association that is poorly run or is there, is there maybe a time and place for a special assessment? 
Well, uh, once again, I look at associations as you could have two theories. You can have low assessments all the time. And then when something comes up, everybody just sure. gets special right. assessed because the theory goes, I know what to do with my money better than an account that's not making any interest, right? Or you have the more conservative people that say, let's increase assessments so that we don't have to ask people for the special because who knows if they're going to have it or not. Right. So, uh, and, you know, there's pros and cons to both. You know, if my event horizon on owning a condo is only going to be three years, I would probably prefer low assessments and just special me if I happen to be there because I'm probably not going to be there for a long time. And then obviously the, the reverse theory is if I'm going to be there for a long time, I want to know that my neighbors have the money. Right. Definitely. So I wouldn't say, you know, but it, that's just the theory of how you run the association. But, you know, there are going to be certain times, you know, I've lived in condo buildings. I've lived in townhomes. Uh, there are certain things like with windows, if the bill, if the windows are the owner's um, responsibility, that probably will be a special assessment. I've been in a condo building that needed new windows and we all had to pay like five or $10,000 for uh, as a special assessment because it wasn't the building's responsibility, but we got a deal when the whole building did the windows. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That all makes sense. Yeah. And there's a lot of times where escrows, you know, can be applied to, you know, post-closing that survived post-closing to ensure I that. I just closed one out yesterday for a deal I closed a year ago. Yeah. The escrow expired yesterday, got from my client, the letter from the association, we put aside 10 grand and the bill, the final bill was like 9,200. It's funny because I've had people forget about those before and be like, oh, I forgot I had this money in an account waiting for me. It's <laughs> in my calendar. It's in my account. So I want to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. Awesome. Um, just to kind of finalize, like just, you know, pieces uh, before we can kind of move and maybe this last, I don't know, 10 to 15 minutes or so into different things, a little bit more futuristic of um, real estate and where everything's going in this world. But um, if you have to get out of a, a real estate transaction, you know, when there's a lot of different contingencies built into the process to protect the buyer and the seller, uh, but it seems like on the buy side, you can get pretty far along into this process where you're still protected to walk away from the deal if it falls into one of these contingencies and, and get that earnest money back. So, um, you know, how do you go about that process if you need to actually, you know, kill a deal after doing your diligence? So I'm going to put a qualifier out there first because both contracts and my code of ethics and yours say that we have to act in good faith. Yeah. I have to remind that to people constantly that we have to act in good faith. Now there's strategy involved in certain things. So, you know, the, another good thing for buyers with 7.0 Quinn is yeah. that the contract on 7.0 basically says within the first five business days, I as an attorney or the other side's attorney, can either approve or disapprove the contract without giving any reason. The only thing it cannot be based on is price. So you get a, you get a buyer with cold feet. It's day four. Yeah. I send out a letter. I disapprove of this contract subject to this paragraph. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing for buyers. You know, on the flip side of it, you're representing a seller. I've had some sellers say in their listing notes, we will only take the car contract because they don't want that to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's one way to get out. That's the cleanest way to get out of the contract in the first five business days, just as long as it's not priced. Um, because that takes into account, hey, I found somebody else. Um, I didn't like it as much as I thought. Things like that. Sure. Other way is to do an inspection. You do an inspection. The contract says that the 
<clears throat> the buyer can either approve of the condition of the property or not. You're out of the contract. Um, there's And you don't have to give an answer. You just have to say you disapprove of the physical condition of the property. Well, and then there's, you know, when you, now when you get to other contingencies, um, let's say the association one. The association contingency is pretty wide open too. It's buyer friendly. It basically says, depending on which contract, either three business days or five business days after receipt of the last condo document. So uh, for those that are new, the normal condominium documents that you get are the declaration, the rules and regulations, the minutes, the budget. If you buy in condominium, it's 22.1. The 22.1 refers to the section 22.1 of the Condominium Property Act. And that is a uh, required disclosure by an association regarding certain things like what are in reserves? What are there any special projects? Are there any special assessments? Buyer can cancel after receipt. So if I get a declaration on January 1st, but I don't get the 22.1, which is not uncommon until January 25th, I can still cancel it after January 25th, 26th, whatever it is, if I don't like something in there. But once again, with my caveat, we're acting in good faith. So then that's the association disclosure. And then you have the mortgage contingency. You can get out of the mortgage contingency if you, in fact, cannot get a mortgage. But it's not just you telling the sell side, there should be a denial letter, because I have this conversation a lot. Um, I can't get a mortgage. I'm like, is your lender going to write you a denial letter? Well, no. I'm like, well, you can't get out based on the mortgage contingency. Yeah. Now, also remember on that is during attorney review, a lot of times when I represent buyers, there is contract language in one of the two contracts that says that if buyer is denied a mortgage, the seller can then go get a mortgage for the buyer at the same terms that are written in the contract. I try to strike that. Yeah. So that if I can't get a mortgage with my intended lender, Deal's done. So there's there's ways out. And look, I get sellers, they get frustrated. They're like, why is all the protections for the buyers? I mean, I tell sellers this all the time. You don't have to agree to these. Just because they're in the contract, you can tell your agent, we'll agree to the price, but we're striking this one, we're striking that one. But how many people are going to move forward with a um, transaction when there's no mortgage contingency? Probably not many. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there ever a point of no return? Like, right. is there... Is there ever a point of no return? Like, oh, yeah. Because there's this, te- again, there's this, there's this period of time where typically a term review is ending. The buyer is now putting up their balance of earnest money, which is oftentimes a large sum of money. Um, and now you're waiting on basically the bank to, to underwrite the loan. All the way up until that point is, you know, you can pretty much get out of the deal, right? So is there ever a time where from that point forward, you can't, you know, you're pretty when much... I tell flat. people, this is a conversation I have on a daily basis. So, and this is something I wanted to bring up earlier. One of the things as a buyer's agent, you can help a transaction. And I don't know how you guys pick your dates, but dates are really important uh, because we, you know, one less thing to negotiate, the better. Because sometimes I get a contract and for instance, the mortgage contingency is 14 days after when the contract was signed. That's not realistic in today's timetable. Not at all. Um, I really wish that when lenders receive the contracts, they see these dates and they will tell everybody, Hey guys, there's no way with the amount of volume on our pipeline, we can't even get an appraiser out there for three or four more weeks. So a two week contingency is not realistic because you got to remember as a buyer's attorney, I have to ask for permission to extend those dates. 
So all the time, <laughs> it, it, it's literally, it takes my staff a whole afternoon. What, what's up tomorrow on mortgage contingencies? Well, and the buyer's always concerned, right? They're like, what's going on with the deal? And it's really just, it's, it's back in underwriting or, or there was a condition that needed to get thrown back in, right? So it's like- it's, The IRS is slow with tax returns. And God yeah. knows what. I Whatever, mean, yeah. So what I tell people is, I look for a complete unconditional clear to close. And when I look for that, that means, I mean, look, if the condition is, you verify employment the day of closing, that's fine. But anything that could potentially deny the client financing, that could be because the individual's not lendable or the building. You got to remember, it's a two-part thing. If it's a condo building, they have the building has to be lendable. And if a building is not lendable, the file will get denied and you won't get financing on it. So I try to say, look, make sure those dates are realistic so I don't have to ask for an extension. If after that mortgage contingency has cleared, and I've either not sent a letter out extending it, or I've basically said, here's my clear to close. That is the point of no return. Your earnest money is hard at that point. Um, you know, I tell people this, because this happened to me. It was the day before closing, million dollar property. My client, the buyer, got a job offer from his dream job, but it was in San Francisco. He's buying a million dollar property. Guess what? We defaulted because he's, and he lost $60,000, but he got his dream job in California. We tried wow. to negotiate that down, but the buyer, the seller wasn't willing to do it. Right. Yeah. Because it's lost time, right? It's lost time on the market. There's, there's, it's the contract, contract said that. I mean, could they have been nice and said, here's 30, 50% of it? Yeah. But they had no legal obligation to do so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's, uh, okay. Well, that's very helpful. Thank you for answering that. Yeah. Um, geez, just... Bob can imagine being as comfortable to walk away from 60 grand like that. So good for that guy. <laughs> um, so, all right, we are, we're about to get the closing table. Everything's been done. We're at the final walkthrough and, and, you know, maybe, maybe the basement flooded, maybe there's a serious issue. What do you do to remedy these, these sorts of situations when you just don't have enough time to, to figure these things out? Well, I tell my agents, if at all possible, don't do the final walkthrough the day of closing. <laughs> You know, but sometimes you, you can't avoid it because sellers moving out until five o'clock the night before, uh, based on the buyer's yeah. schedule, you have to do it the morning of. I mean, give me at least a night, give me at least a business day, uh, because what happened is the stress of the deal then comes because the buyer has their trucks ready, full of stuff. They're ready to move in. Um, so number one, try to do the final walkthrough a day or two beforehand. Um, understand what's being left. I can't tell you how many times I get a condo deal and where's my fob? Where is the parking pass? Oh, the tenant still has it. So as a listing agent, take stock of what you're giving to the buyer. Because in the end, at the table, they're going to ask me, I'm like, look, talk to the agents because they handle the keys. Yeah. Um, unless they were given to me. But, you know, that would avoid a lot of things like, hey, I'm buying a two unit building our two unit condo, why isn't there two parking passes? You know, all those things should be hashed out before the closing table. But if there is a inspection item, like, oh, I just dealt with what's, what is attached and what's not attached. Um, you know, I, if it can stand on its own, it's probably not attached. But when things are stuck to the wall, they're attached. So 
make sure you're, you know, because a lot of buyers, even the most seasoned buyers agents, they're like, I just assumed that was attached sure, or not attached. And it was coming or it was going, you know, that's a big fight. Um, and then all of a sudden now I'm trying to negotiate a, a credit uh, or forcing the seller to bring back something. When it comes to repairs, you know, I try to see, will a, a one-time credit resolve it? Uh, but I just had another deal the other day. There was leaking at the final walkthrough and the building engineer had to go look at it. We had to put $5,000 in escrow. But then you run yeah. into, is the buyer's lender going to be okay with an escrow? Because a lot of buyers, it, lenders don't want that change at the end or they want to underwrite it. And all of a sudden now you can't close that day. What's more important, closing that day or dealing with the escrow? And then there's trust involved because in this deal, my client, the seller, had to mail me a check so I could put it in my trust account. And the buyer's side had to trust that she was going to do it. Yeah. yeah. Lots of crazy things can can pop up last minute. So I actually usually do my, my final walkthroughs morning of, so I'm going to start doing them day, night before, day before, whatever it is, because it makes a lot of sense just to make sure you give that buffer. So yeah. got it, got it. Well, I think we've we got only a couple of minutes. So Q, I don't know if you want to like kind of just maybe like summarize some of our last things here, in like a fire round style where we kind of just get quick answers. Um, yeah, get kind definitely. Of well, I mean, there's also a couple, we got a, a couple questions that uh, kind of came up as we were discussing. So I guess like, why don't we dive into that a little bit? Like Mark, why don't you talk about, you know, I know you're a Bitcoin hodler. So talk about, uh, you know, the role you could see cryptocurrencies possibly playing in, in transactions. And also, what's going to be the, the price of Bitcoin at the end of 2021? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I am a hodler. I, I don't trade. Uh, I, all my stuff is on a cold wallet. And thankfully, I, it doesn't end up in a dump somewhere in, like in San Francisco like that guy. <laughs> I'm on Trident yeah. 9. Um, where do I think Bitcoin is going to be at the end of 2021? Where I think versus what I want. I want it to be $100,000. Uh, what I think it's probably going to get back to the 60000 level that was in April. Uh, I'm hoping uh, there's a uh, Bitcoin Grayscale Trust is about to open up a lot at the end of, I think, next week. So we'll see where the price is going to be. But that's just my uh, evangelist uh, feelings about Bitcoin. Where I think Bitcoin and blockchain is going to be, I think blockchain is already here in real estate. Um, blockchain in Ohio and in a couple of different states are kind of taking over the title process because the whole point of blockchain and it's, yeah. it it is is the is proof of ownership right and what better place to have that than real estate because you know the title process as it is now is is pretty cumbersome you have to do these searches things that were recorded in 1894 and all those things and the blockchain is going to just make that a superior product and everybody will be able to tell it and you can't mess with it right right now you can record a, a fake deed and all that blockchain will stop that. So I think that blockchain is going to be huge in real estate um, regarding Bitcoin. It's just another form of currency. I um, mean, you read stories about people buying things in New York or California on Bitcoin. I think it's too volatile right now um, with regards to buying something because look, would I use my Bitcoin to go buy a Tesla? Probably not because that Tesla then could have cost me, you know, it's like the guy that bought Bitcoin, you know, six years ago, he bought a pizza with his Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin right now is trading at like 34, right, so right. thousand. And so his pizza cost him, you know, $68,000. But 
uh, I think it'll be another cryptocurrency. The store of value will be Bitcoin. Uh, if it's Ethereum or Cardano, Polkadot, if you know what those are, it may be that may be the currency that you're going to actually end up paying with, but it's going to be supported by a Bitcoin price. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, like, you know, cryptocurrencies and blockchain is super simple and like everyone understands it. But I guess uh, like my question, if, if you if this were to happen in real estate transactions, would the blockchain start like whenever the technology is like integrated or would you be able to go back and like add necessary? No, they're going to have to go back and basically. So there's a company in Ohio. What they're taking is like Fidelity, the largest title company out there. They're taking basically their inventory and their information and they're feeding. putting it on the blockchain. Okay. So that you know, the starting point of each property is when it started, right? Yeah, right. And that way, moving forward, instead of doing it the way we're doing it now, you just do everything on the blockchain. Yeah, yeah. super simple stuff. Makes a ton of sense. It just streamlines everything. So uh, let's jump in, uh, you know, very quick hit on the crypto there and blockchain. But, you know, what about the uh, proposed changes to the 1031 exchanges? Where are you at with that? Yeah. Hate it. Um, I have a lot of clients that are investor clients. It, I think it would put a chilling effect on investment because I've got a lot of clients that move in and out of transactions. The theory is that you start it, and you can even start at your condo as an investment. And then 15, 20 years later, you have a 40 unit building, right? Uh, if I have to pay capital gains on my gains, then what's the point of that investment? So I think it's going to put a chilling effect on people moving up. Uh, and because that, that's the whole point of it. Yes, I get it. The country's broke and we're printing money left and right. However, that spurs investment. It spurs transactions. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I personally, because I do, my clients do a lot of it and I've personally done 1031s. I think it's a great thing. Um, so, and I really, you know, the obvious reason is the government can get their tax, but you know, there's other ways to tax things. And this would just have a negative impact on commercial real estate. hundred percent. Yeah. Speaking of real quick on the potential negative impacts on real estate. I mean, what about the, you know, landlord tenant situations that we're dealing with, with eviction moratoriums and, and deferral of, of, of mortgages and things like that. You know, what, how do you think this is all going to come crashing out? Yeah. And exactly what's like going on there. So, you know, for a lot of people who don't know, they just, I think they don't really understand the bones of it. I mean, but, but a lot of, you know, landlords and owners, they're just, they're not receiving anything and they don't get compensated at all. Correct. So just so you guys know, so my firm handles a ton of landlord tenant um, on any given year, we're filing over a thousand evictions. We most, we represent some tenants if they're existing clients, but we're mostly 95% landlord based. So there has been a moratorium since COVID started. That moratorium is supposed to end August 1st. I don't know what the courts are going to do because right now we're still going to zoom on a lot of our courts. Um, but there will be, you know, a floodgate because I mean, I can tell you my firm has over a thousand evictions to file because I've had clients that haven't gotten a payment since April of 2020. Um, our fear is that, you know, we, right now we can't file against certain clients because if they've applied for the grants that the government's given, we have to let them go through that process. But, you know, right now the mortgage companies for my clients, you know, they're in deferral right now and it's hurting their credit and it's also hurting, um, you know, the banks now, but for my clients, it is, Hey, my credit score just went down, you know, 
200 points because I can't pay my mortgage because my tenants aren't paying me. So, uh, you know, when the floodgates do open, it's just going to be interesting because, you know, if the firms that do as much volume as we do have as many as we do, it's going to be crazy. <laughs> Insane. Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but a lot of short sightedness, I think from a policy standpoint, uh, for sure. Um, so, all right. I think that Jordan, do you got any last, last minute questions at all? No, I just, I think it'd be cool to summarize, you know, you know, this is something to, to educate, you know, not only on the real estate but legal side of the transaction. Right. But, you know, you as a business owner, right. We're all business owners. We all want to know how to, to, to scale up and how to continue to grow personally and professionally. Like what are, you know, maybe just some top things, you know, quick answers here, you know, some books or podcasts that you've used, whether it's today that you enjoy or that you use along your journey on just gaining information and, you know, having that learning based mindset, what's really helped you or aided you in career, maybe mentors. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, I, my, the, piece of advice that I give everybody is, especially with realtors, is you can't carbon copy yourself. So the hardest hire, but the best thing you could ever do for yourself is make your first hire. Because it, it was very difficult for me to make my first hire because you think of it as lost money out of your pocket, but then it frees you up for other things. Um, you know, And a lot of realtors, it, if they could get an assistant that could write up the contracts or do other things, it gives you more time to do what you need to do. So I wholly want people to, to hire people, hire people third party out. I have got an agent that has a virtual assistant that works in the Philippines, works U.S. hours. And it is great because they're on top of their emails because you're showing it's rude, I think, to be on your phone the whole time if you're at a showing with clients, right? So you have somebody back in the office doing all that stuff for you. So I highly recommend that unless you want an in-person person. Um, you know, the people or things that I've been looking to, I listen to Bigger Pockets um, yeah. because it's real estate, uh, real estate based. I'm part of a couple of groups. Uh, for instance, in Chicago, I'm part of the Chicago multifamily group. I meet a lot of people there. Um, look, there's business to be had out there. I mean, everybody started off not necessarily knowing what they're doing and they've turned into phenomenal realtors, phenomenal attorneys. You know, I'm, I'm a person that, you know, I wish we were doing this in person, uh, because I, I'm a networker and I, that if you, if you want to hustle and you want to make a career out of this, you can do that. Um, you know, I went to Tony Robbins. Uh, I believe in what he teaches and everything. Um, those are kind of my mentors or things like that. I've watched, you know, I follow Tom, Tom Ferry and, you know, even though I'm not a realtor, I love what those guys are doing. Uh, Jason Pantana, all those guys. So, um, it, it is phenomenal what they're doing. Um, but the, the biggest part of it is be personable, pick up the phone. And, you know, the one thing is clients, even though you think it's bad news, they just want to be told the truth. Yeah. Be honest with your clients. They will accept that um, because even though it, there's a sticker shock to certain news, they'll be glad that you told them that. You know, if you feel like they shouldn't buy this thing, tell them why. Yeah, um, and they'll respect you for it too. Absolutely. Like 90% yeah. of realtors won't do that. Yeah, I mean, look, I get it. You want to be, you know, helpful and you want to say yes to a lot of things, but sometimes a client really needs to be told no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Love it. Great stuff. 
Um, so second, uh, rapid question. You got some friends in town. Uh, you got to kind of, you know, show them Chicago. Where are you taking them first? And, and, and what does that look like? Well, it depends on which friends. <laughs> sure. uh, so if I'm taking friends that have never been here, uh, you know, you'll do the, the kind of touristy stuff, but not the touristy restaurants per se. I'm, I'm a, a bit of a foodie. So uh, if I have friends coming into town, if I can get a reservation at, I, I chase Michelin stars. I actually, my wife and I, we travel around the country, sometimes the world, going looking for Michelin restaurants. Nice. So we'll book, we'll book a trip based on where we can get a reservation uh, oh. in the world. And so if somebody was coming now, I would try to get a reservation at Ever or Oriole or whatever's hot-wise uh, on that food scene. I would try to bring them there. And then, um, you know, I'm, you know, my clubbing days are not always gone. So probably get a table at Tau, see who's playing at Tau and uh, dance the night away. Love it. Awesome. Tau. We had our, we had our event there last year. In Tau. Yeah. <laughs> Year Years ago, man. God, last event. Uh, uh, I might only last till midnight, not 5am anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's so Mark, uh, last question here, I think maybe, and then and Q can take us out. Um, been a fire start to the, the year 2021. What are your predictions for the back half of the year? And then we'll finish this thing out. Sure. You know, so I asked most, a lot of my uh, clients that are realtors. I'm like, I always constantly ask them, what are you seeing? Because now I've gotten in the breath. So usually my barometer is Monday mornings. How many contracts did I get over the weekend and Monday morning is how busy the market is. Hmm. Uh, the last two weekends, including 4th of July, and I wasn't expecting a lot on Tuesday because of the long weekend. But this last weekend, I think over the weekend and Monday, I only got three or four more contracts. During the height of all this, I was getting on average 10 to 15 contracts over a weekend. It has slowed down for yeah. different reasons, I think. I think people are taking vacations. Um, people that needed to buy up uh, have already done that. So it's slowed down. Uh, I think that... You know, and I and people that are doing as much volume as I, attorney-wise, we need the break because we're going at yeah. a fixed pace. And, you know, and every Friday is like end of the month now. Every Friday, if I don't have any less than 10, it, it's odd. Um, so at this point right now, I think we could use the break. I think it's going to speed up again in the fall because when school starts, you're, you're going to see an uptick. Um, last winter, there was no dead period. So I think we're going to get right. more regular things. I've seen the loop. You know, if you ask, if you and I had this conversation in July of 2020, there was nothing going on in the loop condo market. The yeah. loop condo market has gotten better. Uh, I think the numbers pr uh, prove that. But, you know, I've closed things at um, Aqua again, uh, Vista, all or whatever Vista is being called these days, uh, Nine West Walton. So those buildings... Uh, are doing well. I'm not really sure about the buildings that are 500 to 750, but you know the high-end buildings they're selling, and we, we, you know the multi-million-dollar places. So people are still buying those. But what's going to create the inventory or the the, the quantity are those 500 to 750. I haven't just seen a lot of those. Yeah, for sure. Good stuff. So um, last question, Mark. You, you sort of answered this, uh, but so what is one piece of advice that you would give to uh, those who are starting their careers in real estate? or who are transitioning their roles into the industry? Number one thing I tell anybody, specifically realtors, even though you think people know what you do, get on a mountaintop 
and shout out loud, I am a realtor. How many times have you heard, hey, oh, I just sold my house last month. I wish I knew. Even though the people that you are most closest to, let them know. If it's on social, if it's on email blast, let them know what you do. Um, because if it's, you know, if you have kids and it's other parents, if you are single and you're out at the bars, tell anybody, I'll tell people when I used to take the bus to work, I strike up a conversation. I'm a real estate lawyer. What do you do? My Uber driver. What do you, I, I've had Uber drivers as clients before because I give them my card. So tell everybody what you do. If your goal is to get more business, you got to speak up. There's business to be had. You got to do the hustle because if you think it's just going to come in this million dollar listing, you know, I met Sirhan once. He works his ass off. So you you, got to do the hustle. So talk to anybody and everybody and let them know what you do. Yeah. Boom, boom. Mic drop at the end. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, what a great way to end it. Um, So, yeah, that's that's our last question. Uh, You know, thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. Jordan, appreciate you being here, man. Excited to have you on for more of these. And, and Mark, thanks again for for dedicating your time to this, man. You know, we we wouldn't – you're the perfect guy for it. So, you know, we couldn't be happier to have you on. Well, I appreciate your time, everybody. Thank you. You guys have been awesome, Jordan and Quinnen. And thank you, YPN and uh, Carr, for having me on. And uh, if anybody ever needs anything else, I think my contact information – will be in the chat or in the information. So feel free to contact me, new or old agent. Yep, that's right. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for spending time with us this week. You can catch up with YPN and what we've got coming up next at chicagorealtor.com.